following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. someone uh, takes a car or maybe an airplane that does not belong to them for their own use. What do you call that? Grand Theft Auto, right? Right? Uh, Or what would you call it if somebody marched into a Burger King restaurant and closed it down for a couple hours so they could change clothes? What would you call that? Hijacking or something? Hijacking a Burger King? I don't know. What would you call that? Um... Or suppose, suppose somebody uh, closed down a mile of pristine beach on the French Riviera so they could have their own private party for a week. What would you call that? Like just insane, right? Just insane. Just crazy, right? Public beach. It's like, no, you can't use this beach. It's mine now, right? Um, uh, well, what would you call it when a rabbi takes a donkey for his own use. That's the story we're going to look at this morning. Um, And uh, in all of those cases I mentioned, it seems crazy unless you have some legal claim to take what's yours for your own purpose. There's actually a word for this. And throughout the centuries, uh, kings and rulers and powerful people have exercised the right of commandeering property for their own use. And it's actually legal, and if you have the right to claim this, it's, not, it's no longer theft or hijacking. It's exercising your right uh, as a supreme ruler. So, for example, last month, I'm not making these things up, or yeah, last month, the king, of Salim, king Salim of Arabia took over a mile of beach in the French Riviera where his house is for a week so he could have a private party. And the French government went along with this, and it made a lot of people, surfers and you know, beachgoers, very angry. But he claimed the right to do that because he's a king. Right? Um, so, who, so who commandeered a Burger King? Does anybody know? The Pope. Last month in July went to, uh, I'm not sure the date, maybe it was before that, but recently uh, on a trip to Santa Cruz, Bolivia, needed a place to change into his sacred vestments before he did some mass. And the most suitable place, apparently, was a Burger King. So he closed the Burger King down for two, two hours. Of course, a lot of Catholics in Bolivia, they were honored, right, that they got taken hostage by the Pope. No problem for them, right? Uh, not long ago, in the United States, in Kansas, the state of Kansas, some police officers commandeered a Cessna 150 aircraft and I told the, the pilot we need help searching for a bad guy. So the guy takes off in his airplane at the police orders. The bad guy shoots at the airplane and, and grazes the guy in the head, the pilot. Um, thankfully, it didn't kill him. It was just a minor injury. But, uh, but the police have the right to do that. And, and, in fact, in many states in the United States and in many countries, the police have every right to take your car if they want to. Right? So just be aware of that. If a cop comes up and says, I want your car, don't argue. Right? He's got a right to that. Right? Um, and throughout the centuries and throughout time, it's worked that way. We recognize that rulers have a certain privilege or prerogative to commandeer our property 
If it's for uh, the service or purpose of the kingdom or the, you know, chasing the bad guys or for some uh, uh, official business, right? Well, I want to read the story of Jesus and the, um, um, his triumphal entry. And I don't know about you, but to me this has always seemed like a crazy, ridiculous story, right? Because Jesus just takes this donkey. Um, but in, in this case, it's not theft, right? Uh, we know that Jesus is not a crook, not a criminal, right? So let's read it with that kind of perspective in mind, this idea of commandeering. Um, verse, starting verse 29, when, when he, Jesus, drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just, so those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had, uh, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if, if, these, were t- I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Um, so, so Jesus commandeers this donkey. And... Uh, like I said, for a long time, I thought this is just a crazy story. And, um, uh, you know, if you read it in the, without understanding what Jesus is doing here, it appears that he's just uh, stealing a donkey or borrowing it without permission. Uh, and in the story, the disciples were okay with this, and the owners seemed to be okay with it. But oftentimes, I'm not okay with that. I'm like, well, how, who, who is Jesus to do this? And uh, to put it in perspective, if you know, some guy came to your house and said, and, and, you know, you left your keys in your car, and he opens the door and starts to drive off with your car, and you say, hey, what are you doing? He says, well, I need your car. I'm taking it. Right? We would just not be okay with that, most likely. Right? Uh, the Lord needs it. Right? The pastor needs it. Yeah, sure he does. Right? <laughs> okay. uh, so but Jesus, uh, Jesus gets away with it, and he, he, it's okay with it because... Of the purpose he's doing here. So, you know, throughout the Gospels, we get very little detail about Jesus' travel plans, about how Jesus gets around. But in this account, uh, we get some very ex- specific detail, and it means something, right? That Jesus did this wasn't just, I'm tired of walking. There's reasons why he goes to all this trouble, why he... Uh, commands the disciples to such a bizarre errand and why he comes into Jerusalem the way he does. So let's look at uh, 
uh, at this passage, Jesus is not stealing the, stealing the donkey. He is commandeering a colt for his purpose. So what does it mean? What is this really all about? Well, as, as it says, um, first of all, Jesus is very intentional in what he's doing here. And he gives the disciples very clear and specific instructions. Okay, this is not random. Jesus does not say, you know, I, I, uh, I don't want to walk into Jerusalem. I want to, I want a donkey. Could you guys go find me a donkey? Okay, he doesn't say that. He doesn't go to their local uh, herds, rent a donkey, and uh, say, hey, we'd like to rent a donkey for the day, which sounds kind of funny, but actually that was commonly practiced at this time, especially as pilgrims were coming for, um, for Passover and a lot of... A lot of visitors coming, they would have the hurts rent a donkey, right? So this was not unusual. Uh, but, but Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, just go find me a donkey. He's very specific. He says, you go to that next village. He's probably in Bethphage. He's probably sending them on ahead to Bethany. He says, in Bethany, you'll, you'll walk into town. And the first thing you'll come to this house, there'll be a donkey colt tied up there, one that's never been ridden on. Go to that donkey and untie it and bring it to me. And yes, people will probably ask you what you're doing. You tell them the Lord needs it, right? So he's very specific. Right? It's not random. He is very intentional and clear about what he is doing here. And so there's great meaning and intentional meaning in what is happening as this unfolds. So we need to think, think about that as we try to unpack what, what Jesus means by this act, right? It's intentional, uh, of course, the disciples do as they're told, and they find things exactly as Jesus directed. They go into Bethany, and sure enough, there is this colt, and it's a young one, right? It's one that clearly nobody has ridden yet because it's too small. Uh, it's not old enough that it would have been broke and would be, uh, have been ridden. And uh, they, they go up, and they don't ask permission. They don't knock on the door and say, hey, uh, can we use your donkey, right? They don't ask permission. They don't, they don't barter a rental agreement. They just go and, and start untying it and taking it without asking. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really conscious of, like, getting permission for things, right? You know, and I would be very awkward with this, but the disciples do it. And sure enough, the owners come out and go, hey, what are you doing with my colt, right? And they, they respond exactly as Jesus said, the Lord needs it. Now, we can infer into that all kinds of things. We can assume they recognized the disciples and knew who they meant by the Lord, uh, that it was referring to Jesus. It doesn't say that, but we can kind of assume they knew that. Uh, certainly, they were okay with it, right? They said, oh, okay, and they let them go. Um, what's clear in all this is that Jesus is, is very deliberately orchestrating this event, um, this is not random or arbitrary accident. It is very intentional. And he's orchestrating events. So let's look at what exactly it is he, he is orchestrating. Um, we know, and as you've been, if you've been with us as we've gone through the, the book of Luke for about the last six or seven chapters, Jesus has been on his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, that's kind of how we identify the middle section of Luke uh, is the, the journey section. And it's not just a random, arbitrary kind of going on vacation. I just was on vacation and with family and, you know, kind of laid back. Jesus was not on vacation. This is not a random journey. It's very intentional in purpose. And what is the goal of this journey? Jerusalem, right? Jesus, says, I, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. 
the, the disciples and those following him were amazed at his, his determination to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's not going to be a party. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be uh, what the disciples think it is. He says, I'm going there and I'm going to be handed over to my enemies and I'm going to be mocked and betrayed and ridiculed and beaten and killed. And three days later, I will rise again. All right, so Jesus um, is on this journey to Jerusalem. And it's been an extensive journey. And as he's going, he's taught, he's done miracles. So it hasn't been a quick trip. But everybody knows the goal is Jerusalem. And now Jesus is at Bethany. It's about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. It would take maybe half an hour to go from Bethany to Jerusalem. He is close. This is the, the final stage of his journey. We know from John and other Gospels that uh, he spent some time in, in, in Bethany and he stayed with Lazarus and raised him back to life, all that stuff. Um, but but he's, he's in the final stages of entering Jerusalem. Now, he's come to Jerusalem many times uh, over the years of his life and even the years of his ministry. And every time he came to Jerusalem before, he came really very quietly in fact, uh, in John, we know that one of the times he really came secretly. Uh, so, so Jesus is not, and we, we know Jesus' character and his person. He's not a person of great show, right? Jesus is not an egomaniac. And while crowds seem to surface everywhere he goes, Jesus is not trying to drum up huge crowds. In fact, often he's trying to get rid of the crowds, and he's trying to escape the crowds. And he's, uh, he's not pretentious. He's not out there. But notice what he does here. Jesus is orchestrating an event, and the event he's orchestrating is what? Well, his entrance into Jerusalem. This is what this is all about. This is all about Jesus coming into Jerusalem with flair in a grand parade where he is the grand marshal, where he is the center stage. Um, It's kind of odd for Jesus that he would do this. Think about it, right? This is not normal for Jesus. And it's a little even more awkward that he arranges it for himself, right? Any of you ever been in a parade? Anybody? anybody? Right? Did you organize the parade yourself? Right? It would be just odd, wouldn't it? I'm going to be the grand marshal in a parade that I'm going to create. After church, we're going to have a parade. I'm going to be the guest of honor. You're all going to cheer me on. Everybody up for that? Right. That would just be weird, right? Well, this is exactly what Jesus does here. He puts together this, this parade of which he's the center of, a, of attraction. Um, and, and he takes the donkey, he orchestrates things, he puts it all together. Um, and he is very in control of this whole thing. Right? Nothing about it is left to chance. Nothing, nothing about it is random or arbitrary. He's controlling this. He's in control of the event. right? And it goes according to his plan just as he organized it. And as he descends down from Mount of Olives. So Mount of Olives is, is to, the, uh, to the east, and there's a small valley, and Jerusalem is on the west, and Jesus descends down from the mountain, and you can see Jerusalem right before you. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you, you know this view. You come over the mountain, and there is Jerusalem. And Jesus is going down, and the disciples are there, and they begin to worship and to uh, exalt God because of him. So what, is, what exactly does this all mean? Right? What, what does Jesus mean by this event? And why does he go to such trouble to put together this elaborate parade 
for his, his entrance into Jerusalem, to mark his arrival there uh, as he culminates his journey. Well, um, Jesus is teaching something about himself through this event. And unlike uh, a lot of scripture where it's his words and his teaching that, that count here, what matters most is the event itself. Right? So what is it about? Well, I believe that Jesus wants to make it clear that he is coming to Jerusalem as her king. Right? He's coming as her king. Uh, Jesus uh, illustrates that in several ways. First of all, he has the right to commandeer the donkey, the donkey's colt, right? Uh, he was very deliberate. He could have just borrowed. He could have negotiated other ways. But, but he's exercising the right of a king to commandeer property, right? Uh, so the very act of him taking the donkey the way he does is part of his assertion, his claim to the throne, and he's saying, I'm coming as a king. I have the right to commandeer whatever I want. The right of rule, the authority to do that. Uh, he comes um, creating his own parade. Not because he's an egomaniac, because, but because that is the way a capital city should receive its king. And as he comes into Jerusalem and, and uh, the disciples begin to honor him, and shout out to him. Um, it's a king coming into his city. Right? It's a royal procession that he has organized. Uh, and he's, by this act, he's claiming his right to rule over Jerusalem. He's making a statement that his primary relationship with Israel as a nation and as a people is as her king. As her king not as a rabbi or a teacher or a prophet only, but as one who has the right and authority to rule over the city and over its people. Well, how do we know that was Jesus' purpose? Um, the event models it, but is there other evidence that would support that that's how Jesus came? Well, uh, the context helped us out, helps us out. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28, the, the really beginning of this this account, it starts this way. It says, And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Luke connects the, the triumphal entry, the entry into Jerusalem, with the story that went before it. Uh, and I know it's been, you know, five weeks since I was here and I preached on that passage, but if you remember, it's, it goes like this. In verse 38 and 40, it says, um, I'm sorry, verses 12 and 14. Uh, Jesus tells this parable. A nobleman went up into a far, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, "Engage in business until I come back." But his citizens, what citizens of his kingdom, hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, "We do not want this man to reign over us." Okay, and then he follows with this next story. And after saying these things, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he enters. Right. So the context here, that the story that comes before this is Jesus is picturing himself as a king who will receive his kingdom, who will go away and receive his kingdom, who will return to set up his reign. Right. And so Jesus then, in, in verses, this passage we're looking at, comes in as a king, 
Also, uh, at the end of this account, in verses 38 and 40, notice what it says. The, the disciples begin worships, worshiping, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? So the disciples, they get what's happening here. It does not go by them. And they exalt Him. They worship God because of Jesus who is coming as the King. Um, Luke is the only one who puts that in there. If you read the accounts of Matthew and Mark, uh, they leave out the word king. They say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, but Luke doesn't mess around. Luke does not want us to miss the point. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is entering the city as a king. And that's what this is all about. And he's not coming in his own authority or in his own name. He, he's not doing this by his own doing. He's the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It is by God's sovereign doing that he has appointed and set Jesus up as king. And so Jesus is fulfilling his God-ordained role. Uh, And that's really the point of what's going on here. Um, Jesus is making a statement here that his primary relationship with Israel is as her rightful ruler and king. That he is the anointed one, the promised one who would uh, come and sit on the throne of David. Um, And so it's important to see that, and it's important for Jesus that they have the opportunity to receive him as such. Uh, Jesus is saying in this act, I am not just your prophet. Uh, A prophet was one who spoke for God. And certainly Jesus was that, right? He was a great prophet who spoke for God. But if he was only a prophet, then they could listen to his teaching, but they didn't have to uh, um, respect or follow his position, right? He's just a teacher. But but Jesus is more than just a teacher. Um, Nor was his role simply as a priest, as a mediator. And he would do that, right? Jesus was about to die on the cross, and in doing that, he was, would act as a priest, the Hebrews tells us, where he would take his own blood as high priest before the, the, the temple of God, and he would mediate between God and man because of our sin. And certainly this is not downplaying what Jesus would do on the cross. But that's not primarily Jesus, how he wants to relate to Jerusalem here. Right? He wants them to know that they must acknowledge him as king. He is prophet, he is priest, but most of all, he is king who comes to rule over the city, to rule over this people. Well, uh, if if we know the rest of the story, we know that this didn't actually go so well, right? He came as a king, but did did they receive him that way? Of course, for the most part, no, right? For the most part, they rejected him as king. But even that is significant. So what is the right response? How, how do we respond to Jesus as king? Well, Israel had one of two choices. One, they could celebrate him as king and submit to his rule. Or they could rebel against him, reject him as king, and seek to kill him. And one of the difficult things between a monarchy and a democracy, in a democracy, if you don't like your president or prime minister, you, you just vote him out, Right? When they're a monarchy, there's only one way to get rid of them. Kill them, right? That's, 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 the, that's the goal, right? So Jesus comes in and he really forces their hand. 
says, I come in as your king. Will you receive me? Will you put yourself under my authority and rule? Or will you reject me? And of course, we know what happens. Uh, by and large, the leaders, the, the people of Israel as a whole, rejected him as king. Um, uh, and we see this uh, two sides in the last couple of verses. As, as he was drawing near, already down the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." Uh, Luke also makes it clear that it's not just the crowd in general that's shouting his praises. It's his disciples. It's those who willingly accept him as king. But, of course, the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, not king, not ruler, not leader, teacher, we're going to keep you in that role only, rebuke your disciples. Right? Don't you see what they're doing? They're exalting you as king. Okay, you shouldn't be doing that. The Pharisees seek to put a stop to it. Right? They says, enough of that. Enough of that. And, of course, disciples do not stop. And Jesus says, if they, if they do not, the stones will cry out. But the Pharisees did not stop there, and they sought in their own way to silence his voice and to end his rule. And they led their own insurrection against Jesus, their king. Um. So that, that's what this event means. Why does it matter? Um, let me ask you a question. How do you, when you think about Jesus, when you pray, when you, when you conceive of who Jesus is in relationship to you, how do you most often conceive of him? Right? What is your thought about who Jesus is? What, what kind of position or role or place uh, does he have in your heart and mind when you think about him? Well, I think that, uh, speaking for myself, and I think really largely for where Christianity is in the world today, I don't know that we, first and foremost, think of him as king, right? Uh, we think of him as redeemer, as savior, as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is those things, right? He is our redeemer. And, and we would never want to diminish what it meant for him to die on the cross. But is that all Jesus is? Is that all Jesus is to you? Uh, I would contend that it's vitally important how we answer that question because who he is dictates our relationship with him. Um, it does matter who you are. It does matter what kind of person you are. It does matter the position you are in as to how you relate with people. Okay, now if you don't believe this, I mean, you can try some experiments, right? Um, this is one way it worked out in my life. Way back a long time ago when I was a pastor in the United States, um, I, on the side just for fun, for a while I was, I was a ski instructor. And Denise and I, would, I got this job ski instructing so our family and our kids could ski free. It was a great deal, actually. So we're up there. We're ski instructors. And uh, everybody who, the other staff at the ski resort, were you know, introduced to us as ski instructors, right? And they didn't really know who we were. We were just ski instructors, right? But over the course of time, people would want to know, obviously you don't make a living doing this, right? Um, so what do you really do? How do you really live? And over time, I would say, well, I'm a pastor. Well, it was, it was amazing every time because there would be all this backtracking as people were 
thinking, oh, what did I say wrong? Uh, and they start apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sure I said something. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know, right? And all of a sudden, they were, they were having to reshape their relationship with me because I was you know, like a man of God or something, and they were all kind of weirded out by that. And they didn't know what to do with that. It's like, I can relate to you this way as a ski instructor, but as a pastor, I have to relate to you differently. Right? It matters, right? So it, it dictates how we relate to Jesus, how we think of him. Right? Do we think of him as king? Right? Do we relate to him, not just as Savior, not just Lamb of God, but do we relate to him as king? Is he, is he simply to us a prophet who you know, gives us some good advice how to live our life? That's all he is. Then you know we can kind of take and leave what he says. You know, if it seems like it's helpful, we'll do what he says. If it seems kind of culturally outdated, right? That's the thing now. Well, that's just culturally outdated. Jesus clearly doesn't know what it means to live in our modern world. So I can chuck that part of his teaching. Sorry, chuck that part of his teaching because, well, you know, he just doesn't know, right? Uh, is he only a prophet, or is he only a priest? Right? Is he only the one who, who mediates uh, our lost and sinful life before God, solving our sin problem. And, and certainly, he is that. Okay, I want to downplay that, right? But this is how it can get framed, right? We can put it in the context that, well, Jesus, what he is about is fixing my sin problem, right? So we relegate him to kind of the spiritual thing of our life, like, well, yeah, Jesus deals with the, that kind of sin thing, but the rest of my life is mine to live how I please. Right? And Jesus doesn't really have anything to do with my everyday life. Right? He, he, he deals with the sin stuff, and he took care of that, but, you know, uh, that's just one sliver of my life. And oftentimes that's how we see our spiritual life. Uh, or do we see him as king? Uh, as the one who is a prophet who teaches us how to live, he is a priest who has who has made our, our made us right with God. But above all, he is a king who has the right to rule over our life, who has authority over all creation, and has authority over me. Um, what does that look like? Let me just give. Uh, for five quick things that I think that it means out of this passage for Jesus to be king. Uh, first of all, it means that he is sovereign. Uh, in this story, we see Jesus taking control of everything. Right? Uh, Jesus did not go to the cross because he could not prevent it. In fact, from here on, Luke takes great um, effort to show that Jesus is in control that Jesus picks the time and the place and the date and the way that he is going to die. Right? He controls how, will, how he will enter the city. Right? He is sovereign. And he is able to dictate and orchestrate the events of his life according to his Father's will and plan. Right? As king, he is sovereign. That's what kings are. Kings get their way. Right? That's how I know I'm mostly not a king. Because usually I don't get my way. Right? I'm the pastor, I'm the director, I'm this, I've got these titles, I'm not king, right? Because I usually don't get my way. Right? Jesus gets his way. Right? He is sovereign. And what that means for us is 
He wants to be in control of your life. And if we trust him and we allow him to, to do that, he can work out his purpose in your life. Is anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand, but is anybody here worried this morning, fretting, concerned about things in your life, uncertain about how things will work out? Right? Is anybody in panic mode yet? <laughs> right? Any of you breaking out in hives because your life is so stressed out and chaotic? Right? Here, here's the good news. Jesus is in control. Right? If you will trust all that worry to him, if you will give him all the things that you fear and are in panic mode about, guess what? Jesus can work it out. Amen? Jesus can work it out. Right? And if you are worried and panicked and stressing and fretting, it's a sign that you're not trusting his authority and sovereignty to rule things. Does that mean he's always going to work it out the way you went? Well, sadly, no, right? But it doesn't matter. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. And he is a king who will work out his purpose in your life if you will trust him to do so. Right? Let go of that stuff, right? Turn it over to him. Because he knows how to work it out. He knows how to work it out. Second thing. Uh, he is a humble king. Uh, Jesus, he's in control. He's sovereign. He can have anything he wants. Right? He, he's big enough to pull this parade off. And he can pull it off any way he wants. Interesting choice of wheels. Right? A donkey colt. Right? Why? Right? Why? Um, if you want to impress your girlfriend on a date, you don't show up in a don in, with a donkey colt, right? If I put it in modern perspective, right? It's like, it's like you know, you, you, big thing now for guys to, to orchestrate this whole thing when they ask their when they when they propose, you know, right? So you you, you make these big plans, you go to it's, it's a big deal, right? So if you're gonna propose to your 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 fiance or your girlfriend to make her for your fiance, right? Right. Do you choose a limo or a Honda Dream? Right? Well, if you want to make a big impression, you get the limo, not the Honda Dream. Right? Unless like the Honda Dream has some kind of weird meaning in your relationship. Right? Uh, well, Jesus shows up on a Honda Dream. Right? The cold is basically a Honda Dream. Underpowered, too small, and common, ordinary. Right? It's what everybody rides. It's what he, that's what he chooses. And not only, you know, a donkey is a very common mode of transportation, but he chooses a donkey who's never been ridden. Okay, it's got no experience. It's too young. It's too small. Right? Um, Jesus could have picked a war horse. He could have picked a horse with a great chariot. Okay, that would make an impression. Right? Come in riding in a chariot like the pharaohs of Egypt, like Solomon. Right? But no, he picks a donkey. Not even that, a colt of a donkey. Well, what does it mean? Well, Scripture helps us again with this. In Zechariah 9.9, 9, it tells us what it means. Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. I think Yoda from Star Wars translated this verse of the Bible, apparently. Righteous and having salvation is he. I don't know why. I didn't write it. Humble and mounted on a donkey. 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's humble, right? Zechariah tells us that the meaning of that is that he comes in humility. He comes not with force, but in, in apparent weakness. And of course, Jesus comes and he does not... Um, he does not come to bowl people over with his power. That's what it means. That's what humility means here. He does not come with force or power to, to compel people to do and follow him. He is not the kind of leader who forces his followers to do this and do that and to follow him. He comes um, in weakness. And he offers himself as king, but he offers himself in a way that they can reject him. He doesn't come with an army that makes it impossible for them to rebel against him. He comes alone on a donkey's colt and says, if you don't want me, then kill me. And so they do. Right? He comes in weakness. And he comes to us in the same way, laying down his life for his sheep, giving himself up in weakness and allowing himself to suffer in our place. Um, that's the leader we have, right? He's a king, he's in control, he is powerful. But he does not use that power in a way that's coercive or overbearing. He's humble. He's humble. He invites us to follow him. Thirdly, uh, he, he's a king, he, he's sovereign, he's in control, he's, he's humble, but he has every right to commandeer stuff. Right. Uh, and what that means is if we want to call Jesus king, if we acknowledge him as king, Jesus has the right to commandeer your life. Right. And he will, and he does. Right. He wants to use you for his kingdom purposes, and he comes calling you to commandeer your life and all your possessions, all you are, to take and make use of it for his kingdom. And he has the right to do that as king. As a prophet, he does not have the right. As a priest, uh, maybe he could compel us to out of obligation to the debt he paid for us. But as king, he has absolute right to tell us what to do. Right? He has the right to uh, rule over our life. Um, so it is our place, if he's king, to submit to him to daily yield our life and all that we have and say, God, everything I have, everything, everything I lay before you, it's yours. Use it as you please. Right? That's what it means for Jesus to be king. Fourthly, it means that he is competent. Okay? He, he is an able, competent leader and king. And what does this mean? Well, it, um, it means a couple things. And to get the perspective on this, uh, did you ever think about why the Pharisees were so adamant against Jesus? Why, why, was it, why were the Pharisees so unwilling to consider Jesus as king? Well, I think there's, a, there's probably many reasons, but at least a couple I, I thought of. One is that they themselves were very corrupt leaders. Uh, Jesus accused them over and over again of using their positions to trample people underfoot right? and to use their position for selfish gain. So when the Pharisees think about what a leader is, that's what they thought of. They thought a leader is somebody who acts selfishly on their own interest and tramples everybody under them for their own gain and benefit. 
Second thing that I think the, the Pharisees were worried about is they, uh, they were powerless. I mean, they had some power and they used it to their own gain, but overall they were under the power of Rome. And they were worried that Jesus was going to be a troublemaker, was going to stir things up and bring Rome down upon them. And they could lose everything. The Romans could come and destroy Jerusalem. Okay, of course, we know the end of the story. Ironically, that's exactly what happened because they rejected Jesus as king, right? That's what they feared. So they, they, they saw leadership as people who misused their power for, for personal gain. And secondly, um, they, they were powerless. Um, uh, how do you feel when uh, you get the, the, the email from your organization that says there's going to be a change in leadership? Anybody embrace that like all out going, oh, yeah. Now, maybe your, your current leadership is so bad, that is good news, right? It's like nothing could be worse than the guy that's in there now, right? But most of the time, we're like kind of panicked by that. And why? Well, I think we have the same fears, right? We, we worry that this person is going to um, misuse their authority, right? They're going to somehow push us around or do stupid things that are going to bring harm to us or, or the organization, and, of course, there's plenty of leaders who have a track record of that, so we can say yeah, it happens, right? Leaders tend to mess things up, right? So we don't, we don't, we're not comfortable with that change. Or we see we, leaders who are just powerless and ineffective, right? They've got good plans and they seem to have a good vision, but they have no power to pull it off, right? Well, Jesus is not like either of those things, right? Uh, they praise him, his disciples praise him, why? Because of the mighty works he has done. And Jesus proved over and over again two, two things. One, that he loved people. And that he always, always, always acted in their best interest. Right? Jesus always did what was best for everybody who came to him. Right? He wasn't Santa Claus. He didn't always give everybody just what they wanted. But he always did what was ultimately best for them because he loved them. Right? He's that kind of a leader. He's a good and loving king. But on top of that, he's also powerful. Right? There was nothing he could not do for his people. Right? Uh, so Jesus is a competent leader. He both loves you. He wants the best for you. Uh, and he's able to do all that he's promised. Lastly, he is a king who is worthy of all honor. Right? If we really understand who Jesus is and if we really begin to wrap our minds and our hearts around him as Lord and King, um, this shouldn't be a bad thing. Right? We shouldn't feel like, oh, you know, Jesus, he's going to tell me what to do. He's going to push me around, right? right? If we're truly his children, if we're truly followers of him, this should be really, really good news. Uh, we should, like the disciples, and, and get the picture. Can you, can you picture this, right? Jerusalem is right before us. We're coming down the Mount of Olives, down this road, and there are crowds of people, throngs of people. And we've been following him, and we have seen how Jesus has taken care of us how he's provided, how he's been good, how he cares for us. And, and the crowds cry out, Blessed is this king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest.
right? And you worship him because of the good things he's done. We should see him as a great king who is worthy of our worship. Um, and I think sometimes our worship is is weak because our Jesus is weak, right? We've reduced him to something far less than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? We have so emphasized his role as Savior, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that we fail to acknowledge him as king, as a rightful ruler of all creation. And, and they joyful, it says they rejoiced and they shouted aloud. It should be joyful worship. Why? Well, because he is king, right? Here's the sad reality. Several hundred years ago, uh, some really smart people in, uh, introduced a, a philosophy called humanism. Because you know humanism? What humanism says is simply this, that life has lots of problems and you are the solution to all of them. Well, at that time there were kings and there were not good kings and so people kind of liked this idea that we don't need kings to solve our problems. I can be the solution to my own problem. And so, poof, democracy was born and we got rid of kings and we started voting people in and we embraced wholeheartedly this notion that I am the solution to my problems. Right? And how has that gone? Well, not so well, right? Because the reality is I'm really bad at solving my own problems. Right? And the world has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. Right? Now, of course, some people would say it's gotten better because we have drugs and, and Internet and Facebook. What could be better than Facebook, Right? But overall, our problems are still there, right? Our problems are still there. Jesus said, this is what it means. When Jesus is king, it means, guess what? You are not the solution to your own problems. That's the job of a king. It's the role and job of a king to create a safe place where you are provided for and you are protected and you are cared for doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities in that, but it means that you're not the ultimate solution Jesus is. Now, does anybody find that a joyful thought? I do, right? It, it should be joyful that we have a king who's loving and good and powerful who wants to be the solution to every problem in your life, right? every problem. You don't have to do it yourself. That's Jesus' job. Uh, and we should worship him with joy. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. that he loves us that much.